Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Good to see you again. It's good to see you too in this post-Easter week. I know, I'm always so tired. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so last week we sort of ended saying we were going to do a part two on our Easter conversation, but as we've been talking about it, we've sort of realized that um, part two isn't really about Easter per se, right? It's about more the relationship between the divine and humans, right? So the Easter story has us talking about like, what does, what do humans owe to God or what does like redemption look like? How does God make that happen? And in fact, there's lots of different ways that the relationship between humanity and divinity kind of plays out, right? And we can, we've talked a little bit before about the ways that humans kind of, by definition, God is this unknown thing to us, or at least partially unknown. And so we have to talk about God in the ways that we have to talk and that that's kind of limiting sometimes, right? So, so we were thinking a little bit about this question of God as possessed of a gender, right? So, so especially in the Easter story with Jesus like front and center, there's a lot of like he this and he that and Jesus as the form of redemption and this male body and in stark contrast to his mother's very female body, right, that produces life and is the, is the one that grieves and sort of, so this question of like, how are we limiting the divine by sort of placing the divine into a gendered category? And especially to think about it as, as the world increasingly understands that gender is not these sort of this or that, right? Like, and that we have created these constructs for ourselves. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the different ways that that we project out onto the divine some idea of the divine's like physical form and like masculinity or femininity and what qualities that happens to carry and yeah. Which is, you know, in some way a conversation that started, well, I mean it started, you know, thousands of years ago and has been happening in a variety of ways, but it started again you know, maybe with the feminists in the 70s, 80s, who were trying to break open images of God and lots of books coming out of God is mother. And, and, and yet now we again have this opportunity to rethink because we're rethinking gender and we're, we're shifting out of this binary understanding, which, which in a lot of ways really frees God to be more godlike, right? And, I remember studying, you know, feminist theology a long time ago and making the shift from the assumption of maleness into an assumption of femaleness and thinking really God isn't male or female. And I remember writing in lots of notebooks, God is beyond the realm of opposites. We, we now understand that we don't actually live in a world that has just two, these that we are not in fact opposing, we are not opposites, that 
there is this gender fluidity even in humanness, which really breaks open what the divine might be. Yeah. So, but let's go back for a second because um, I want to talk a little bit about the idea that um, God hasn't always been so perfectly gendered, right? That like something kind of happens, particularly with um, the the codification in Christianity, right? Of of sort of the Catholic notions of which gospels go in, and like um, that when when we sort of get institutionalization of Christianity, we kind of get this hardline institutionalization of gender as well. It's a little more complicated. There's definitely like some feminine divine stuff that happens with mystics, right? Throughout. The medieval period, things like that. But if you go back early enough, you get these like other kind of um, visions, right? Like I'm thinking about like the Gnostic Gospels, which we haven't talked about yet, I don't think at all in our podcast. Um, but there's one in particular, and of course, I'm going to forget which one it is. But it's like the the concept there is that like um, a god tries to like create the world, but tries to do it on its own and it's like this false creation that's like evil and in fact there's like a god beyond the god that people know and like wisdom in the form of like a feminine character is sort of involved in the whole thing and like it so it's just the 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 story was much more complicated if you go back right and you were sharing about how some of the early even the early scriptural hebrew scriptural texts don't necessarily have god as he right Right, well, in Genesis, the Genesis, God is referred to as they. That um, in the, I think it's Genesis chapter two, where God is, they created them. It is, it's absolutely. Now, interestingly, scholars have said, oh, that comes from the ancient tradition of not being monotheists that in fact, God wasn't singular. So God was many and the gods created them. But then the story is rewritten for a monotheistic culture. So they use sort of they in this singular pronoun. And yet even then they wouldn't have imagined what they were trying to to demonstrate was a non-binary God. And yet scripture has that built right into it. And then not long after that, I'm trying to think of when the Book of Wisdom was written. And the Book of Wisdom is canonical for um, the Catholics, but not Protestants or not most Protestants. I think that there are a few, it's possible the Episcopalians have it, um, but ca- Roman Catholics definitely have this Book of Wisdom, which is absolutely a female gendered God. And in that case, it's still the female. But right, as, as we go through time, we shift and the male becomes more dominant and then becomes codified. Like by the time we get to Constantine and the Council of Nicaea and they're like, you know, exactly what is it that goes into this book? Then they were really leaning heavily on all the male imagery. Well, and then along come, along with that, right? We've What have we done? We've done like divine... Um, like divine punishment or like retribution, right? Like we've done, um, like there's certain qualities that then get sort of imparted onto God and then God as male and it sort of underscores the notion that maleness carries particular, right? So there's a funny almost cyclical thing of like, so we project 
certain ideas or behaviors or ways of being onto God and then call that male. And that reinforces that male behaviors, because we have talked about how our vision of God impacts how we behave or sort of what we think we're allowed to do. And if, if God is allowed to do the following things, right, like kill everyone, <laughs> right, or like destroy the world a few times because he gets mad about stuff, like all of a sudden what we're doing is we're sort of validating a particular vision of maleness that involves anger and violence. And, and also when you move into the um, Christian scriptures, sacrifice, right, um, like also there's sort of an interesting set of values that then get associated with not just maleness, but like the most powerful, the most right. bestest form right. of maleness, right? Right. The all-knowing, all-present, yeah, yeah. all-judging, all-deciding. Yeah. It's, it's everyone's fear of their abusive father. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, it, it, it's, when you go back even further, right, um, and you have traditions that don't have a single God, that have many gods to represent many different parts of living and existence, you know, often the flip side of values are embodied, you know, at least back then were embodied in feminine, right? So um, sort of like the nurturing springtime goddesses and the hearth goddesses and whatever, right? So it's not, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm saying, I'm not suggesting that like European Christianity is responsible for gender binaries through time, right? Like they've existed. Um, and it's really interesting to think about how trying to deconstruct those binaries impacts how we understand God. Um, and I told you a story a little bit ago um, about my oldest child who, you know, goes to, like, we've talked about this, goes to, like, a really progressive school, right, where they're teaching them about, like, gender identity and the, the spectrums and all of these things, and one day we were listening to some pop song where it was Justin Bieber, right, Holy, 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 where Chance the Rapper starts rapping about God as a he, as a father, and my little Unitarian Universalist nine-year-old is like, why does everybody think God's a he? If they exist, I bet they're gender fluid, and I was like, my work is done but like the point being that like when you start to deconstruct it when you start to deconstruct gender you got to deconstruct it for god too right like god doesn't get to live in the binary if we're gonna you know but that's hard to unpack for people right well, because, oh go ahead because we make god in our own image and whatever our limited ways of understanding ourselves are we then limit our understanding of god so as long as we understand human nature to be male or female we understand god to be male or female and then we pit those two ideas against each other rather than recognizing gender fluidity and the shifting back and forth in a variety of ways of expressing self and once we understand that for ourselves we can start to project that onto some divine being what i think is so interesting about this right is that like i totally agree with you right from a sociological point of view um even if something beyond us exists, right? The way that we are able to speak about the ineffable is by projection, right? Like, in other words, maybe some separate thing for me ontologically is real, but I can't know it in our current form. So I can't talk about it. So the only method I have to talk about it is by the things that I do know and to get as close as I can by approximation, right? And so we get this projection piece. But what's so fascinating to me, right, is that at least for the monotheistic traditions, the narrative is God created humans in the image of God's self, 
right? Like it's, we did this like funny work at the beginning of, of these monotheistic religions to sort of say, like, don't get confused. We're not projecting onto God. God created us in God's image. And that justifies in some way our projection onto God of our human attributes and, and limitations, right? It's an, it's an interesting kind of like mind puzzle, you know? Um, well, all right, a way of saying if to, to, know, to know ourselves is to know God. And I think then that's what we do with Jesus also. And we have this like, very human manifestation and then say, well, if you know, we project God onto this human. Now, of course, I think Jesus was God insofar as we are all God, but, but we use then this very male, very human image to understand God. Right? And I know that in some Christian circles, then you start talking about Jesus as, I mean, we talk about Jesus as like eating and drinking and sometimes laughing and certainly dying, but you know, like going to the bathroom, right? And then you go like, oh, like, you know what? We don't want to talk about that. But that there's, we, there is something incredibly human, incredibly human about Jesus, but also about our, um, our need for God to be just like us. And you're right, an important part of that is because we can't imagine outside of ourselves. We don't have the capacity. I mean, one of the proofs of the existence of God is that we can't imagine something greater. Like by definition, it is God is the greatest because we can't imagine anything greater. We are completely limited by our own ability to, to imagine, to create. So that incarnation piece is really interesting, right? Like the humanity of Jesus, because for the first thousand years of Christianity, the humanity of Jesus was not the thing, right? Like if you look at art historical um, sort of representations of, of Jesus, for the longest time, it was like muscly, heroic, like triumphant on the cross. And it's only around like the millennium, funny things happen in the millenniums. Uh, it's only around the millennium that people are like human, like and all of a sudden you're getting like sort of gaunt, blood pouring out everywhere, like these really human portrayals of Jesus. So this question of incarnation and how we relate to the idea of a God being in a human or at least sort of, you know, understandable corporeal form is really interesting how it evolves over time, right? Because it wasn't always a thing, right? Um, I think for the longest time, probably there was something in the the, the the salvation piece was the piece that felt the most important. So the triumph, the like godliness, the like, right? And then something happens and what people need or want or rediscover is the approachable humanity of Jesus, you know? Um, well, it happens in waves historically, right? I'm just thinking, so we have like, 325 where this is really debated and then 451 at the Council of Chalcedon where it sort of solidified that Jesus was both human and divine and then for like 500 years there's this heavy emphasis on Jesus as God largely because they want to make Jesus um they want to bring a God to people who had just lost all their Roman gods and they wanted to be offering something and and then right around the, the millennium, but bring, like bringing God back down to be relatable. Yeah. 
know Jesus and becomes far more human. And we see it in waves. So we see God becoming more godlike and then more human, like, you know, over and and over in history. And it's, I mean, there's a really large context, right? And like, we're not, you know, we're not going to do a class on medievalism right in this moment, but like, there's a much larger context, right? There's, there's different things happening in monastic movements and other sort of religious thinking around the time there's literally like millennial cults and stuff that are happening, right? There's all sorts of things going on that help to sort of conspire to, to bring this sort of humanness to the fore. But I think what I think is something that I think about sometimes (laughs) is Christianity is not the only one that has incarnated gods, right? Like it looks different in different traditions. Like Christianity has a very clear, like there was this one time of incarnation, this one instance, right? And, and it had a very particular purpose and whatever, but in other traditions, there's like in Hinduism, right? There's like frequent incarnations of gods into different creatures, not just into humans, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, that, question of how we bring God down and I don't mean down in some value judgment way I mean like literally like onto the earth <laughs> like how do we bring God into and onto this place that we know right it's not unique to Christianity that's you know also where some of this gendered language comes in because we start to um, project our own experience of the world onto God and then it becomes this mirror bouncing back and forth so that then tasks for individual people become godlike. I mean, in a very traditional Christian home, a conservative Christian home of say a hundred years ago, you know, the the man in the house, it was a man and a woman and there were children and the man like played the role of God, right? And And then as we started shifting and breaking open some of that gender, those gender expectations, and then understanding women as playing the role of God as the the creator, as the mother, as the nurturer, different ways of, so we, we do keep wanting to bring God into our experience, into the very human experience and define ourselves according to whatever these projections are, and then projecting those things back onto ourselves to locate ourselves somehow in this larger divine context of the world and all and how we define all of these relationships and the expectations around how we're supposed to behave with each other based on what we expect or assume God is. So I think, okay. I'm having a thought and I want you to go with me on a little trip. Okay. (laughs) So here's the thing. So if, if we play out this notion, right. Of like God as reflection, there's something we titled last week, divine process. And there's, there is the, the way that our world has pushed forward. Right. And I'm thinking about the development and incorporation into real sort of popular understanding of like therapy, psychotherapy, and the idea of becoming, right? And if we look at process theology, so, and I always get his name wrong, Alfred, Alfred North Whitehead, right? White Northhead? I never remember his name. What is it? 
Whitehead. His last name was okay. Whitehead. Alfred yeah. North Whitehead. So if we look at, or like Gordon Kaufman, right? If we, if, uh, if we look at those kinds of folks and process theology, which is sort of the idea of the divine is continuously unfolding, right? Like whether you want to understand that as unfolding because as humans unfold and humans learn, we project in different ways. And so God by definition unfolds, right? Or if you want to understand it as God is a thing that is sort of in us, among us, and also separate from us and unfolding on God's own path, right? But the idea of becoming, right? If we stop looking at God as a static, boxable, like definable thing forever, and instead look at God as something that is its own process, their own process, right? Then the individual becoming, right? So the child that's growing and learning who it is and deciding what it wants to be in the world and that that's not a process that ends, right? Like it's not like once I hit 15, I've got it all sorted and I'm ready to go, right? That the human unfolding is a process. Then the reflection again, or the I'm made in the image of God or God's made in my image, either way you go, God is God's self unfolding as well, becoming in a constant state of creation, recreation, right? Yeah, well, I mean, and this is the evolutionary theory, right? The same way that that all of life on the planet evolves and becomes more and more, well, how do I say, that we work toward our own potential, all of life, that God is part of the creation. God is also working toward their own potential, uh, unfolding into this life process and and is never static. God is not one thing for all time. God is always moving, always in this dynamic process of becoming more of God's self, the same way that we all are. And at the risk of sort of engaging in sort of armchair psychology from that Psych 101 class in college, you know, I think that what happens is that folks, it's scary to understand yourself as constantly becoming and never fully realize is actually quite terrifying, right? Like there's a comfort in being able to say like, I'm done now, <laughs> right? Like I remember um, in div school, we used in divinity school, we used to call things um, like growth opportunities, right? And I remember one time a friend just being like, I don't want another fucking growth opportunity. I just want to stop. And I was like, I hear you. Like not everything has to be, right? And not everything has to be, but there is an element that's sort of like, maybe it's a little disheartening or maybe it's a little bit scary, even though it's also filled with potential to understand yourself as never, like that self-actualization is not a thing, right? Like it's a thing out there that we never reach. It's like the, when you go half by half by half, that mathematical theory, you never get there if you're only ever going by half, right? Um, and that, I think that's scary for folks and legitimately so. And as a result, the idea of God as being that too, like that God isn't even a solid thing that you can kind of cling to as like real and defined and never changing, right? Like that, that introduces a level of uncertainty into life that I think is hard for people, right? It, it introduces a level of lack of control um, that is extremely challenging. Most of us like to control, <laughs> like to control stuff, right? Um, we like to think we know what's going to happen or that we have some ability to, to force what's going to happen, right? And you and I, we believe in free will, right? I'm not saying like everything is just like, bah, but um, I do think that part of what appeals to folks about more fundamentalist traditions is the idea that there is a rock solid thing 
that is very black and white. There is nothing, like it's very boxed in two different ways, right? And, and that's just it. And you can count on that thing, right? Um, and then asking folks to, to understand a constant process of becoming, it's a challenge. When my father was um, first diagnosed, he was diagnosed with cancer and he was given four weeks to live. And what I wanted was a God who was gonna make it okay. I wanted a God I could pray to. And like, if I, someone who was absolutely in charge. And I remember saying to people that I was sorry that I believed in a God, not yet, <laughs> because I wanted a God right now. I wanted to believe that there was something somewhere that was gonna make this better. And instead we are all engaged in the process of becoming and that life continues to unfold and that God, but it would feel so good to know that there was some kind of benevolent being who was taking care of everything, but not, it just isn't my experience in the world. And, and I think that, you know, Darwin really opened this up for us unwittingly, <laughs> but I think that, that when he said, when he noticed that the way that life happens is in a process and it happens slowly over time, I think that it opened the possibility that no matter what it is we think we know in this particular slice of right now, like that the birds look the way that they look, right, that they were actually dinosaurs. That there is this process over time that moved them from what they were to what they are. And this, we are not stopped, that they become something else. And that in a thousand years or a million years, you know, if in fact we don't kill the entire planet before then, that that those birds, <laughs> by the way, the, those birds will be something else. And that God too is becoming something else. It's a, um, it's a big ask though, because so what I'm thinking about is, especially like watching my children, right? Watching children come into an awareness of both their finitude, right? And their mortality, but also their sort of grandness and power, right? And we talk, I don't know about you, but we talk about this all the time in my congregation, or at least I talk about it all the time, that like we are both sort of like the things that you do matter, right? Like your life matters, the ways that you behave in your life matter, like you are a being of great power, probably more than you even understand. And at the same time, like you are a tiny speck and a tiny thing in like a huge, huge unknowable vastness of space and time, right? So it's this weird like holding together of both I am so meaningless and insignificant and to the people around me, to the world that I, to my life, I am not meaningless and insignificant, but those are like holding those together, right? Is a challenge too. Um, and so that sort of like the, the God not yet and the person not yet, but at the same time you are right now and God is right now. Um, I really think that's like the central theological tension of, of viewing the long process, right? Is this sort of the, the, it's so easy as humans to see ourselves as like just this, right? And it plays out a million different ways, right? How I, how I, what I do with my money, what, how I think about my children or the past or the future, or like how I treat the planet, right? Like all of that is predicated on 
my ability or lack of ability to understand myself in a much, much, much larger, longer history, right? If I can't see five generations from now or conceive of it, then I don't care what I do to the planet because whatever, not me, right? Um, so, so much is dependent on our cultivation. And I don't think we do this well. I don't think that Christianity and I don't think that Western culture do a good job of cultivating that big view of humanity and existence and evolution and process, right? That we're really good at like right here in this moment, here's what I need or here's what, you know, you know I'm saying, but I think something's lost. You know? I don't think we even do it well generation to generation. I mean, I remember preaching, I, as, I guess I was preaching on climate or something environmental. And afterwards, a man came up to me, a baby boomer who said, you know, he said, I want to apologize for my generation. So we honestly didn't know. He said it was, it was really cool to be able to make new things and buy new things and have things that were um, disposable. And he said, we, we really, it never occurred to us that there was no such thing as a way. It was such a, an interesting moment for me because I thought, while I wasn't holding him personally accountable, he was really right. And, and yet, you know, it's so rare that a generation can look to the next generation or, and really never three or four generations away because we're just not alive long enough for it to say, I created the mess that you're in. And whatever it is that you are living with for good and bad, right? There are also really good things like we built that railroad, so you're welcome. But like that, that kind of thing, we're not usually around for it. And, and evolution of course is, is, you know, about millennia, you know, many millennia, if there's we need a word for that, um, that there's, there's no way for us to be responsible, to feel attached, to understand how things are really changing. I, I was just uh, listening to the book, Braiding Sweetgrass, which by the way, if you, the book itself is phenomenal, but to listen to it, to hear the author reading her own story to you is just powerful experience, but she was telling the story of these two maple trees that are by her house and that had been planted there about 200 years before by a couple who were um, getting married. I guess people planted trees next to each other and that here 200 years later, she was now living under the, and that for their whole lives, those two trees would never have gotten all that big. It, it took a really long time to be able to really, you know, to have the shade, to have the maple syrup, all those things from the trees. And even that's just 200 years, right? So, yeah. So I do want to press a little bit though on the idea that like, that humans are sort of definitionally not able to do this thing. I actually think it's partially a condition of modernity, right? Like, so if you go all the way back to like our first episode about like technology and stuff, um, there's, it's only, right, it's only in the last maybe couple hundred years where like lots of movement, right? It was not uncommon for people to live in multi-generational families, to not move from the town that they were born and grew up in and died in, right? Like people did live to see changes and hear stories and understand deeply the place that they existed in. And we've gotten really far away from that, right? Um, two things come to mind, right? So on, on Facebook, there was a, a meme going around about ancestors, right? And he never thought about this before, but. I have two biological parents. They had 
two biological parents giving me four grandparents and you have to keep going back but all you have to do is go back like a couple hundred years and suddenly you're at like thousands and thousands and thousands of ancestors in a way that I'd like never conceived of right but we we so sort of striate is that the word I'm looking for um like ages in our in our culture and society that we lose any sense of that like longevity, right? The other thing was a colleague asked folks just sort of randomly, like, how far do you live from the place you were born? And I was like, well, I'm like 2,500 feet as the crow flies, because I can literally like see it across the river. And he was like, you know, shocked emoji face on Facebook. And I was like, I know this is not so normal now. And everyone else is like 2,000 miles, 3,000 miles, like every once in a while, there's a four miler, right? But most of the answers are like just worlds away from where they were born. Right. And so I think that there's something culturally, technologically, socially, where we have moved ourselves out of the structures that used to help mitigate generational loss. Right. But there used to be ways. Um, and it's true with religion, too. Right. When we get people moving out of institutionalized religion for perfectly good reasons, but you lose some of that memory, right? Some of that storytelling and sharing and embedded sort of eternal truths that exist in and among the, you know, other crappy stuff. Um, but you lose sort of that, like, what is our relationship to each other? What is our relationship to God? What is our relationship to the earth that we share, right? You start to lose some of that stuff. Um, so this conversation started with this idea of how humans project ourselves onto God and how we um, understand God in a non-binary gender fluid way. And we've moved into something totally different, which actually I think is really cool and completely <laughs> unexpected. But as we're coming to the end of the episode, I think we need to just bring it back around so that we're um, sort of putting a period at the end of the, the larger sentence, which is, which is really to say that we, um, that in order to, to understand God, we have to best understand ourselves. We have to best understand our own situations. And then we have to best understand ourselves in the context of a massive history that continues to change. That the human condition, um, what it means to be human unfolds. And we understand it differently in each generation over the course of all of human history, which means we understand God differently and we need God to be different things. So we project different things onto God and God's self continues to evolve and unfold and become so that the relationship between humans and the divine changes over time. And that we are in a particular moment where we're starting to understand at the very least the ways that we've projected gender onto the divine. And in a generation, this conversation will seem either trite, <laughs> you know, and just sort of obvious, or um, maybe, <laughs> right, maybe it'll still be radical. Who knows? <laughs>
<laughs> well, hopefully it won't be radical anymore. Um, I do think I, I do think it's interesting. We, you know, obviously our whole season this season is about the divine, right? And sort of lurking in the background, right, is this sort of specter of atheism. And I think that there's a really um, interesting thing that perhaps we'll sort of double around to again on another day. But this question of sort of what is the relationship between atheism and the progression of sort of society and thinking and culture, right? That like atheism sort of happens in a more widespread way in a particular time and place, probably for a reason, right? So that even the belief in no God is itself a cultural, social, projected sort of development, right? Of how we talk about humanity and existence and what the world means, which is why I always argue to people that even if you're an atheist, you have a theology. But that's like, we can, can leave that little controversial tidbit for next time. Um, you know, yeah. I know that, that next week we're talking about the seasons and, and change. And then, and after that, our, this whole season for this podcast ends. But in season four, I think we should talk a lot. I think we should focus on atheism, right? We should talk about some of these things, about how, because I think that, whatever, I have a lot to say about atheists. <laughs> That's like another little controversial thing being dropped before we end. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. We can but for now, we, we need to close this episode because it's going okay. on. <laughs> you and I could just talk for days. Talk for days. Um, yeah, I do think this is really interesting, though. I'm glad that we kind of got around to some, some diverse things because it does all center on this question of the relationship between the human and the divine. It does. So. It was really good talking to you. You too. I'll see you next <laughs> week. Bye.